Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. So week five, we've got one more week to go of this series that we're calling Baked In. The idea being, of course, that Lent is not this brand new thing that we kind of impose on our lives, but rather that the lessons of Lent are already kind of baked into our lives. It's just about kind of unearthing them and seeing them for what they are. And as we said at the beginning of the service, so we'll say now that yes, we're kind of coming to the end of Lent here, which seems like a really weird time to remind you that most of us, when we think about Lent, think about discipline, right? Even if we have no interest in participating in that, we at least know that Lent is like, well, you're supposed to give up stuff, so like it's usually the time that we give up alcohol, we give up chocolate, we try to work out. My favorite is when people are like, I'm going to stop gossiping, and I'm like, you should probably do that anytime, not just Lent, that's a good idea. Like, that's not what Lent, Lent is not about giving up your sins. Christianity is about giving up your sins. It cracks me up. But even if we know nothing about Lent, we at least know that, right? That it's about this sense of discipline. But this feels like a good time, as we said earlier, to stop and to consider those disciplines we did or did not set out to engage in five weeks ago. And I wanted you to start thinking about that a little bit. Because so often, as as we come to the end of Lent, or any time that we come to the end of kind of a season of our life, it could be a liturgical season, it could be a time, you know, I've... I'm moving out of, as I look at my own children, I'm kind of out of the baby and kid stage, moving into the teenager stage. It's a new season of life. Maybe it's one job to another kind of thing. Those times we have major shifts in our life. We often dive into a process of evaluation. And we often do evaluation by this pretty strict code of, was it a success or was it a failure? Now, yes, we permit ourselves a lot of gray area, but we often ask the question, well, how did I do? And here's where I want to start this morning, is that that might be the worst question we could ask when it comes to our journey of faith. One of the worst things Lent has taught us is that it has tried to teach us to evaluate our spirituality. Did it work or did it not work? Was I successful or did I fail? The reason it's so terrible is because our spirituality doesn't want to break down like that. We practice our spiritual disciplines not to be successes and not to avoid being a failure. We practice spiritual disciplines, friends, so that we might learn about ourselves and we might learn about God. That's what they're there for. And so at the beginning... As we talk about this a little bit at the end, and as we think about what this journey over the last five and next week's six-week journey is... I want to encourage you, do not evaluate your disciplines. If you've been in the prior with me, you're like, Sam, you already said this. I know, because it's the same for prayer. But we should pay close attention to our disciplines. We should notice what happens to us as we attempt to practice these things. Either we do or we do not. What happens to us? What happened that, yes, I did my prayers this day, or no, I didn't do my prayers this day? Well, what happened? What caused that? What was going on? Why did I react that way? Why have I struggled with this particular thing? What emotions, what feelings has this raised up in me? We should be 
undeniably curious and wondering about our experience through the disciplines, but to evaluate them to say they were a success or a failure will take us sideways. Again, we persist in these things so that we can collect information, collect understanding about ourselves and learn how we react, what our journey is all about, how God interacts with us, and what are the roadblocks to that interaction with us. And it's those kinds of questions, not did I do good or bad, but what did I learn about myself and what did I learn about God? Those are the answers that take us to the deeper realities of faith. So you went six weeks without chocolate. Do you love Jesus more is the question I want to get to. And in this way, failure teaches us as much as success does. And I hope this is a note of grace for many of us. Failure teaches us as much as success does. We know this, but sometimes we think in the realm of God, well, failure is sin. Well, no. Because sometimes when we're successful in our disciplines, it reminds us of sort of this commitment sometimes we have to unhealthy ways. And it drives us like, oh, you know what? I can break out of unhealthy patterns. I do have some sense in me that I can, I can grow and I can be different. Like when we're successful, we will learn that, yes? And if we're unsuccessful, then we can say, well, gee, you know what? I'm in deeper need of God's mercy than even I thought. Both those places are wonderful, excellent places where we do learn to love God more. Either way, we're drawn deeper into God's truth. I bring this up because the story that we have in front of us today out of the Gospel of John is a very extravagant story. It's very much out of place in so many ways in the Gospels. But at its core, it's a story that invites us to pay attention. And it invites us to, pay, to see who is paying attention and who isn't paying attention. And it's a story about how we discipline ourselves going forward so that we might walk more closely with Jesus. Now, if we're paying attention, this story for as much as it feels lavish and grandiose, is actually dripping, it is soaking in death. First of all, Jesus is at Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. In much the same way that we are just a week out from Palm Sunday, so Jesus is just a couple of days out of his entry into Jerusalem. And the cross is growing in the windshield, so to speak. Jesus is not ignorant to his own journey. He knows what is coming. And so for Jesus, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more that the specter of his death looms large. All the more so, and this is one of the, my favorite things we don't talk about a lot, like Lazarus is sitting there. Anybody else surprised? Like, I thought he was raised in the den, just kind of hung out. Like, he's still here. Like, he's hanging. Lazarus is sitting there, and none of us need a reminder that Lazarus is a reminder of death. Yes, I mean, we think of him being resuscitated and brought back to life, but boy, Lazarus is a reminder that death is coming for us all. And there he sits, just reclining at the table, just chilling. His... She's fine. And Jesus is sitting there, reclining at the table, when Mary comes out of nowhere. There's no indication this is coming. She comes out of nowhere and pours this expensive perfume on Jesus. Now, Nard... Was an expensive perfume, yes. It was fragrant, it was beautiful, yes. But its primary use was for dead bodies. This is a compliment to Jesus, but let's be honest with one another, it's a weird one. I mean, who pours the perfume of death upon your best friend? Like, just kind of say that out loud for a second. 
And not only is this poured out, but then she wipes it with her hair, this remarkable symbol of humility. And then the smell fills the room. So now literally everybody is smelling death. It is dripping with death. As we think about that, let us also think that while we have death, we don't have people retreating from death. We don't have people running away from it. What we have is this intense, intimate, one might even say passionate scene unfolding. There is real love happening here between Mary and Jesus. And sometimes it makes us a little uncomfortable to see how close their bodies are, how intense this is. So in contrast to this passionate, extravagant scene, we have Judas. And every one of us who heard this story is like, who invited this guy? Like, we were doing just fine with Mary and Lazarus and Martha and Jesus, right? Like, we're used to them. They all kind of hanging out. Like, who brought Judas? You got 12 guys. Can you invite anybody else to the dinner party? Apparently, Jesus did not. Judas, who is in own way, is another reminder of death, right? Because as soon as we hear the name Judas, we're like, Betrayal. We hear it. His take on this story, if Mary is extravagant, well, Judas is, we might say, a bit more um, tight-fisted. Is that fair to say? He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Before we judge Judas too harshly, and there'll be plenty of time for that, there's times, right, when we've been this guy. Right? Like, yeah, I guess so. There are times when we've done faith by the numbers. There's times we've done faith by good common sense, right? And if you'll permit me to walk right up to the edge of the line, there are times we've done faith by the good German virtues of thrift and conservation, yes? Somebody laughs so I don't feel weird. We do this, right? We're like, wait a second, wait a second. What's unfolding here is extravagant. It's way over the top. Like, can we just slow down and think about this for a second and do it in the quote-unquote right way? Well, here's the thing. Spiritual discipline, the concrete steps that we take towards greater intimacy with God, the practices we embrace to be spiritually formed, which means formed by the Holy Spirit, bring us face-to-face always with death. The story is to remind us that no, our journey of faith is not going to take us around death, it will take us right through it. And when we start on this journey, we discover the things that we are not, and in that is in and of itself an experience of death. Now here's something I know you'll laugh at, let me get it out, is that as I turn 40 this year, all right, start the laughing, But there is a sense of like, here's what I thought I was going to be and here's what I am. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I ain't playing center field for the Orioles. Sometimes that's hard, right? What we had in our heads as to who we were going to be, not who we are. The idea that we were super, that we were filled with virtue and super special. And like, yeah, there's, of course there's something special about us. But, you know, I love this bunch. There's not 10,000 of us online. Like, oh, that didn't happen. Sometimes we have to come, we come to grips with this sense of an experience of death that is, here's what I am, which also means here's what I am not. And, it also, and spiritual disciplines forces us to face a world where death is the rule. You know, we're supposed to give up things in our diet so that we experience some semblance of hunger. And then as we experience that hunger, we start to realize, wow, there are people in the world who don't have the choice to be hungry, they just are hungry. And now we've got to see a world that is broken and unjust. 
Discipline destroys our self-made images and the facades we create for ourselves and for others. And it is so many ways an experience of death. Because of that, the sense we often have is that the way we manage that, the way that we manage the discomfort, the uncertainty that comes with an experience of death, whether it is in small ways or in large ways, is that we engage in cold calculation going forward. Cost-benefit analysis. Well, I don't want this to hurt too much, so I'm only going to do this, or I don't want to deal with this part of me, so I'm only going to deal with this little piece here. We do the cost-benefit analysis of the hard sigh of, we got to give money to the poor. The hard sigh of the rigid, the rigid rhythms of prayer, worship. Even some of us, oh, it, oh, I forgot. It's communion this week, and he's going to keep talking. We do this, right? But to think about our spiritual disciplines in that way, to have this sigh and this burden about it, is to embrace, if you'll permit me a relatively harsh term, is to embrace the way of Judas. Judas is the one who is trying to do spiritual life by good common sense, by rows and columns. Judas, in this scene and in scenes to come, is simply making the best decision for himself going forward. Yes, when Jesus betrays Jesus, he's realizing that to be next to this guy that's about to be crucified is probably bad for his image, and so he decides on a safer, more lucrative path. He just runs a calculator. When we try to evaluate our disciplines, saying what worked and what didn't, evaluating what it did for me or how I have improved, we lean into the cold, sterile practicality of a dead faith. Judas is never ready to embrace the death swirling around him. He's never willing to step outside his own limited calculations. Spiritual disciplines are supposed to look like Mary. Because disciplines aren't about asceticism, even though their asceticism is a part of a discipline. Disciplines, life-giving disciplines at their core, are about extravagance. Because the only disciplines that matter are based in love. Disciplines are about extravagance because the only disciplines that change our lives are the ones that are based in love. The athlete works out for the love of the game. The student studies for the love of the subject. Couples reject some things and they embrace, they leave other things behind and embrace a certain, sh certain shrunken life because of their love for one another. When you love somebody, no, you're not going to be out every weekend. And that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. With death swirling in this scene, with this asceticism kind of sitting in front of her, this pain that is sitting in front of her, Mary doesn't run from it, but she runs into it with extravagant, uneconomical, prodigal love. And what comes out is this sensual, passionate moment. And so for us, the question then at the heart of all disciplines in the tradition of Mary is, well, what do you actually love? Because we won't find the core reason for the disciplines at the heart of our faith unless it comes for a, from a deep love of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus answers Judas' pocket protective charity with a little snark. 
By the way, John is like super snarky here. Like Judas didn't actually care about the money. Jesus was stealing from us the whole time. Like there's a certain, like John's got some beef with Judas that he wants to get out. But Jesus got a little snark too. He looks at Judas and says, leave her alone. Then he says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It is not, friends, hear me as loud and clear as you possibly can. It is not a command to ignore the poor, which is exactly what Judas would have done. But rather, it's in, Jesus is indicating how passion and conviction should work. Always having the poor indicates that the community that would form around Jesus, the community that was informed by his death and subsequent resurrection, the community that was nurtured and led by the apostles, would always be disciplined to be in and amongst the poor. It would never break away from the poor. So like, yeah, we always know they're poor people. No, the church would always be in the center of them. That's where they would find themselves. You're always going to be, you always have the poor with you because you will always locate yourself there. They would always show passion and conviction to the poor day by day. But in this moment, at this time, this movement would never run away from death, but rather would fill the room with the sweet smell of redemption and new creation. So we'll always have the poor among us, but Jesus in that moment deserved everyone's attention. Their eyes were focused on Jesus, surrounded by the poor that Jesus loved. That's the picture of the church with the room filling with the smell, yes, of death, but it is this beautiful death that leads to life. We start to discover, friends, as we practice the way of Mary and reject the way of Judas, we start to discover that the entire spiritual life is conviction and compassion. Yes, ours for Christ. The disciplines that matter are the ones that are driven out of love. But the farther we walk down that road, the more we discover, oh wait, actually our love's not the most important thing. It's important, but not the most important thing. What we discover is that that extravagance in love is Christ's passion for us. Friends, Christ doesn't come at us with the cold calculation of numbers and ledgers, who's in and who's out, insiders and outsiders. Christ comes to us with the extravagance of Mary, the extravagant embrace of a lover. Maybe a bit uncomfortable language for us to hear, but this is how Christ comes to us. Christ is crazy about us so much that he experienced death for us. And he invites us to follow in that way, not one of calculation, but of passion for him and for his people and for the world that he comes to bring. Perhaps I should have said at the beginning of Lent, but I've often read that we get out of Easter what we put into Lent. Hear that again. We get out of Easter what we put into Lent. If our love is light, well then Easter will be Easter. You'll have your bunnies and we'll have the flowers and we'll do communion. It'll be a wonderful celebration, of course. But if we give ourselves to the passion and extravagance that Mary practices and we are called to, then we often find the passion of the resurrection bursting forth in ways we had no idea it could do. The Holy Spirit takes us to death as much to resurrection, and we are called to be there, to invest with our whole hearts. Just as much in the journey of death, we are called to invest because we know that out of this passion, resurrection is going to come. New life is going to come. 
And so where can we come with passion to experience death and discover life there? Well, there might be a lot of places, but I know this is one. Here we find Christ who cannot wait to give himself to us. And I pray, friends, that we cannot wait to give ourselves back to Christ, this wonderful, passionate embrace of our God and us. And may we find here at this table in just a few minutes the love of Christ, the sweet taste, the sweet communion of bread and wine, calling us to the sweet, sweet love of Jesus Christ that goes through death that we might have life.